Nature Breakthroughs with Dr. Wild Ben Goldman. Conversations with changemakers in a world gone mad. To discover what you need for personal, organizational, and societal change, get your free download of Three Ancient Rituals Smart Entrepreneurs Use to Bounce Back from Shifts in the Market and Inside Themselves. Go to www.naturebreakthroughs.com. Yes, you pull them, yes, you pull them till they bite down On the lies that you build from my doubts I don't want money, I don't want cars I just want to be free I'm down here by the pond Drinking some coffee, smoking a cigar I want to read you an excerpt uh, from my forthcoming book Nature Breakthroughs, Five Steps to Transform Yourself and the World um, which is available for pre-order now at publishsizer.com forward slash nature dash breakthroughs. Um, this excerpt is called Anger at the Gourd. And it's going to be published in Flights Magazine in August. Here we go. It's time to revisit the source. The Wild Coal Weekend was born in a storm on January 23, 2016 in Merwinsburg, Pennsylvania at the foot of the Pocono Mountains. The snowstorm was named Jonas, the biggest on record to hit nearby Allentown, Harrisburg, and Newark, as well as LaGuardia and JFK airports. Jonas Road and the town of Jonas are across from our cabin tucked in the woods. It was Jonas himself a.k.a. Jonah, who, tr who emerged transformed after three days and nights in the belly of a whale, one of the world's foundational rite-of-passage myths. The book of Jonah is rife with the most powerful natural transformations, the very mission, minus the whale, of the Wild Call Weekend. It's read on Yom Kippur, the holiest day of the Jewish year. It's popular as a children's tale, retold in the Quran and prefigures the resurrection of Christ. The Hebrew name Yonah means dove, a symbol of peace, sacrifice, the Holy Spirit, and also what's pulled from a magician's hat. The story begins with a mighty tempest in the sea. Guess what Jonah is doing during that storm? He's fast asleep, precisely when we change. The squall ceases only when Jonah's shipmates toss him overboard. And the whale, believe it or not, is transgender, changing from male, dagadol, as in Hebrew, as Jonah sits in its belly to female, female, daga, when he's expelled, according to Old Testament scholar James Bruckner. The story doesn't end or begin there. Jonah gets into trouble in the first place by refusing to go to Nineveh, part of modern-day Mosul, in Iraq, where in 2014, ISIS militants destroyed Jonah's ancient tomb. Nearly a million people were displaced by the ensuing battle, and it remains in ruins to this day. Once Jonah repented, it took him three days to cross that great city, warning everybody of Nineveh's forthcoming destruction. They believed him. The king decreed as humbling a sacrifice as imaginable a citywide dry fast for all its inhabitants, animal as well as human. As Jonah 
waits in distress for the outcome, sitting on the east side of the city, the direction of change. A gourd grows over his head, providing shade, but a worm then eats it, exposing Jonah to a vehement east wind, again the east, and such heat from, from the sun that he faints, again asleep. His anger at the gourd is so great, he wishes he would die. God asks Jonah with supreme irony, why on earth would he be so angry when he'd done nothing at all, either to grow or kill the gourd, both natural processes of change. Jonah was like, why put me through all this grief if you were going to, uh, just going to save the people anyway? I do well to be angry, he says, even unto death. Let's return to our cabin in the woods. Across from Jonas is the town of effort, the work that turns missions into impacts and passages into meaningful next steps. Cutting right through it all is the Pohopoco, two mountains bearing down on each other in the original Lenape language covering all of what is now eastern Pennsylvania, the entire state of New Jersey, the Hudson Valley, including all of New York City and western Long Island. This mere creek turned the final glacial deposits of the last ice age into a valley. Therein lies Merwinsburg, echoing the wizard of Arthurian legend, squeezed between Jonas and effort, the whale and the work, amidst whiteout conditions and 40 mile an hour gusts where the magic began in a snow-covered cabin. Quite the confluence of people and adventures brought us here, and just as many possibilities flow from this place and from any place you may be. I want to tell you about the pond, which drains into the creek. After losing many things dear to me, I realized I'm connected to this pond. It's right there behind me. Especially at night, when darkness shuts down like a lock in the river, its cool, its cool liquid fills me. I came here as a boy. Water snakes were everywhere, sunbathing on the rocks, hanging from trees. Our dog, Happy, found a giant snapping turtle in the meadow. I carried it by its furious tail, as big and strong as my little arms, back to my mother, who made snapper soup. That meadow bursts with amphibians in the spring. A wildly bent tree trunk looks like an Indian trail tree, but it is more likely nature's twisted reaction to, to where the Pohopoco was dammed for an ice farm, a technology of old for preservation itself made obsolete by modern refrigeration. Mating dragonflies, quaking aspens, beaver dams, black bears, whitetails, bats, woodpeckers, salamanders, moles, minnows that suck the toe, that suck the salt off your toes, newts with the cutest orange spots, egg sacs floating like gelatinous brains, martins that would dive bomb if you called out my name, wild conchords, blackberries, blueberries, huckleberries, and fraise de bois you can pick straight from the lawn. There was a party going on down here. Since then, there's been a slow, gradual decline. I haven't seen a snake or snapper in years, probably decades. The frogs disappeared once too. As the water level fell, the milfoil took over, an invasive Eurasian weed. Then the trout disappeared. Was it acid rain and eutrophication, which suffocates water bodies over time, or just a crack in the bentonite lining? Nobody knew for sure. In my heart, I felt the sinking moistness 
the sordid, moldy, emptying of life, aquatic and otherwise. I was desperate to avoid another loss, wet grief soaking my flesh and bones. I tried every imaginable way to plug the drain. Capping the outflow didn't work. The pressure from 30 acre feet of water couldn't be contained by jimmy rigging. 20 foot geysers shot from the holes, hacksaws snapped, pipe clamps sprung loose, tools went flying, perfect Facebook fails. Finally, I dumped tarps and concrete and tractor tires and any debris I could find to seal the old barrel that drops to the bottom of the lake. It worked. The water slowly began to rise. The great blue heron returned. So did the peepers. The spring-fed spillover gushed once again into the Pohopoco, which feeds into the Beltsville Dam, down the Lehigh Valley into the Delaware, another name for the Lenape, past Philadelphia, where I was born, and Cape May, and into the Atlantic Ocean, where it connects to the rest of the world, all the way through the Straits of Gibraltar, to, to Europe, across the Mediterranean, to Israel, a reverse of the centuries-old route that my ancestors took to get me right here, right now. Or just a bit north and east from that point of origin, to Syria and Iraq, where today, journalist Aaron M. Saltman, who interviewed ISIS prisoners, found their recruitment plays upon the desires of adventure, activism, romance, power, belonging, along with spiritual fulfillment. The same could be said, I believe, for the causes of gun violence in our cities and even the thoughtless violence we've all done to the earth. These are all echoes of Jonah's suicidal anger, the cause of so much human suffering and destruction throughout the ages. On this very day as I write this sentence, October 16, in the year 1755, raids in, um, began a series of deadly raids in Pennsylvania, including along the Pohopoco, that epitomized the horrors of the French and Indian War. Central Pennsylvania marked the western frontier of British possessions at the time. The Lenape sided with the French, angered by years of European settlers encroaching upon their traditional lands, especially the fraudulent walking purchase of 1737 that stole the Lehigh Valley from them, which I believe would include my pond. During the infamous Penn's Creek Massacre, the Lenape killed or captured all but one of 26 settlers along a tributary to the Susquehanna River, which led Benjamin Franklin to persuade the Quaker province to abandon its pacifism and establish a compulsory military force. Soon, Pennsylvania put bounties on Lenape scalps, $130 for the men, $50 for the women, and even more for the scalps of Lenape prisoners. The desperate barbarity, opportunistic coalitions, and betrayals on all sides were as bad as anything we see in the Middle East and other conflict areas today. Globally, such carnage was far worse back then than it is now. Following the secular decline in violence since the dawn of humanity, as documented by psychologist Steven Pinker, except that, except that view only considers the acute acts of violence between humans except that view only considers acute acts of violence between humans, not our chronic harms against all species on Earth, including ourselves. Pollution, the insidious violence of consumer society, has been on the rise for centuries. 
Global warming is just one indicator of the rampant toxicity we've injected into the biosphere, justified as much by scripture as were so many of those directly violent acts against other humans, called savages, infidels, heathens, etc. We've forgotten that along with subduing the earth, being fruitful, multiplying, and having dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth, we were also commanded to replenish it. I felt Jonah's anger towards the gourd. When I was a child, the gypsy moths invaded. They were, they, their hairy caterpillars were everywhere. You couldn't stand under a tree without one falling into your hair. You couldn't walk barefoot or rest against a tree without squishing another. They boiled and crackled on the barbecue. Yuck! The blight has defoliated over 80 million acres of trees in America since 1970, affecting the reproductive success of birds. Oh, that's my dog Max. Uh, affecting the reproductive success of birds as well. We did everything we could to kill them, including burning their eggs and nests. They were so gross, I despised them. Then they disappeared. One time, Somebody began chopping down all the trees on the north side of the pond. Whoever it was left a disgustingly weird and colorful fungus on the stumps. Within just a month or two, dozens of trees were felled. Then I saw the giant woodpile dumped into the pond, and I knew who the lumberjack was, a beaver. That pile of sticks infuriated me. I contacted a trapper before any more damage could be done. I never met that destructive critter, and there's never been another since. The giant blue spruce soon began to die. I loved those trees. They were really blue. And there were so many that I let a friend dig a small one up for his rooftop, rooftop apartment in Manhattan's Tenderloin District. A giant leafy sumac was blocking the light from some of the tallest and grandest of these spruces. Those sumacs grow from weeds in abandoned lots. So fast they become trees before you know it. They were sprouting up everywhere, flimsy, and easy to snap, so I decided to chop it down. But this big one was hard, very hard. I was quite good with an ax, so it shouldn't have taken me more than an hour, but it took days of chopping for it to fall. That's when I noticed something else strange. There were nuts in its canopy. Oh no, I had killed a rare, mature American butternut. All the blue spruce died anyway. The rooftop one was the first to go. For several, years, uh, for several years, I spent hours each weekend shoveling goose poop. Just one duck can found an entire pond, and these Canada geese came in droves. We splashed, yelled, and threw rocks at them. The dogs chased and barked at them. I bought plastic owls to scare them. Nothing worked. They wouldn't go away. That was the only time I used the old hand-me-down rifle given to my mother and hidden inside a wall. The neighbors were very happy to have a tractor wagon full of fowl that winter. Just last weekend, I spied a new stand of sumacs in the field. Snip, snip, I began to lop them down before I noticed a colorful bug I'd never seen before crawling on all the sumac stalks. I posted an image of the pretty thing on Facebook and almost immediately received comments saying, kill, kill, kill. They were spotted lanternflies the scourge of Pennsylvania's grapefruit and hardwood industries, and the object of quarantine in 14 Pennsylvania counties. 
I reported them immediately to the agricultural extension as advised. So instead of native sumacs, this meant they were invasive tree of heaven, Aelanthus altissima, brought to the United States from China in 1784, landing first in Philadelphia just decades after the Treaty of Easton ended the European invaders' war with the Lenape. So many years after I murdered those caterpillars and trees, the beaver and geese, I look back on that reactivity filled with Jonah's grief. I've done my best to preserve and replenish, but it requires such presence to see beyond the instinctual cravings, aversions, and ignorance at the root of human suffering. I mourn the loss of nature, the beaver, the goose, the blue spruce, the butternut. They're barely even bugs anymore. To be present today, I spent several hours mowing half of a four-acre field. I realized that's how I've meditated since I was a boy, although not on the same John Deere I used as a child. That burned down along with the barn and the rental car, which is another story entirely, the moral of which is don't try to jumpstart a tractor with a rental car unless you know what you're doing and have multiple insurance policies. Another, it's easy to entertain people without trying as long as you don't mind being the butt of the joke. The mower is designed for golf courses, yellow with zero radius. The old farming supply and general stores are long gone, along with those old Pennsylvania Dutch farmers who ran them and repaired the equipment with their throwback drawls and Dutch boy haircuts that seemed both strange and ridiculous to me as a boy. But they knew how to work the land. And don't be fooled, mowing a field is violent work. Thousands of species killed within seconds. Ragweed and Queen Anne's lace. The lace is long gone this time of year. Buttercups and black-eyed Susans. Briar patches trying to establish a foothold. I hit them twice. And plants that look like dead man's lollipops, which I especially love. My parents would have known names for dozens of them. And to think, when their parents were kids, more than 90% of Americans lived in the rural countryside. I don't know the names for most of what I slaughtered and can barely get city and suburban friends even to come out here anymore for fear of ticks and poison ivy, leeches and bears, cobwebs, peepers, bugs and bats, dirt and pollen. For good measure, Duke the dog tried to catch and kill anything that jumped from the weeds just for the fun of it. Rabbits and moles, praying mantises and butterflies. The wasps knew how guilty I felt. They didn't even bother to chase me after the mower trampled their nest. The twirling blades are my mantra, keeping me in tune with everything as I slice and grind. It's amazing all the emotions the mower man feels. Trepidation as the thick grasses rise above my head. Any second now I could hit a rock or crash in a groundhog hole. The groundhogs too are long gone. Only their holes remain. The nostalgia of my baby girl, gone too, now a son, her sleeping warmth on my lap on a cold autumn day. She could drive it herself at an early age, but with no appreciation for the utility of following a straight line. The Zamboni mandala is a magical thing. It bestows wisdom and requires it too. I left the other half for him. I cleared the field early this year, so there was much more life to destroy. Usually, I wait till October when the green has mostly gone, but I saw the farmer next door had already finished his, 
and with only half of a family, half of the time, I filled the day by myself, preventing nature from taking control, bouncing and bumping along while the monkey mind thinks of this and that until the field is cleared and all that is left is empty spaciousness. So peaceful now until everything grows back next year. After hours of rumble, when the engine is cut, it's like the bell rings. I open my eyes and today's meditation is done. Mostly I live in the city, in the sixth most densely populated county in America, facing Manhattan, the single most densely populated county in America. The unofficial mayor of my block told me yesterday that he shot the skunk that inhabited our backyards with a crossbow. No one will miss that varmint except my dog, Max. They argued every night. My neighbor admitted that's also what happened to the opossum and raccoon, the previous backyard tenants, as well as the squirrels who harass his rafters. Thus went the last vestiges of wildlife scampering around this urban place. It's all connected. The, name Pocono, the names Pocono, as well as Pohopoco, for example, are both probably corruptions of Pachka Pachka or Buchka Buchka from the original Eastern Algonquin languages the Lenape spoke, meaning two mountains bearing down upon each other with a stream intervening. It gets more confusing from there. The word Lenape, for example, means human being, which would have included their European invaders too. And so the Delaware, or Lenapewihituk, is the river of human beings. Among the Leni Lenape, the original true people, there were three clans that were sometimes at war with each other during their 10,000 year history. The Wolf Clan, Tukwisit, or Mansi, who spoke Munsi. The Turtle Clan, Pukuwanko, who spoke Unami. And the Turkey Clan, Pele, or Unilachtigo. Only two elderly fluent speakers of these unwritten ancient languages were still alive as of 2018 and none in the United States. Manhattan was the very first Native American place name recorded by Europeans, and they may have originally meant the place on the Hudson's western bank now called Hoboken, Muncie for tobacco pipe. Just south of where I live in Weehawken, variously translated from Muncie as a place of gulls, rocks that look like trees, and maize land. Manhattan, the spelling based on the 1860 poem of that name by Walt Whitman, who was, 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 quote, was asking for something specific and perfect for my city, whereupon, lo, up sprang the aboriginal name, unquote, is widely cited as meaning a hilly island, but an earlier, still apt translation, based on what the Dutch offered the local inhabitants, was the island where we all became intoxicated. Yves Godard, widely considered the leading linguist on Algonquin languages, however, says its original meaning was the place where we got bows. Reflecting the Lenape's deep connection with and knowledge of their environment, the hickory grove at the island's lower end was renowned throughout the land for the strongest, toughest timber to make archers' bows and warrior clubs. Ah, those harmonics again. Like my butternut, those hickories have long since been destroyed. 
replaced by man-made environments that reach high above the treetops. The place is now more valuable than anywhere else on earth. No one would sing, give it back to the Indians anymore, as Rogers and Hart wrote during the Great Depression, except maybe the son of sculptor Louise Bourgeois, who donated his $4 million home in Manhattan in, on Manhattan's one block long Weehawken Street to the Ramapo Lenape Nation. I regret never attending one of his mother's monthly salons called Sunday Bloody Sundays for her pointed humorous critiques, which she generously hosted for emerging artists. Instead, I'll be reading this essay at a nearby writer's salon just five blocks away from Saturday. Bourgeois explored the architecture of memory rooted in her father's Renaissance tapestry restoration business, untangling the traumatic threads of early childhood, culminating in her massive globe-trotting Maman spider sculpture. She saw spiders as friendly presences, yet another creature so many detest. This is the proverbial belly of the beast. I don't mean Wall Street, or not only that, What's with this anger against the gourd? How strange that Jonah remained so angry so long after he emerged from the belly alive. It's still too close for comfort. This dark night of the soul doesn't end when we escape or subdue nature or watch it die or when we forget about uh, what we once knew about it, loved about it, or kill all those who called it home. The anger instead becomes suicidal. It becomes anger at ourselves at our own nature. Our base survival instincts can extinguish entire species, languages, and peoples, including the Lenape, the human being. Mother Earth is getting hot. It seems she's angry too. I fear the silent spring is almost upon us. I wanted this essay to be uplifting, but the belly won't let go. Those bows were not for music, but for hunting and war. They had rosin, but needed a gourd. We teeter and totter with opposing forces. In the belly, it's revolting, stuck in between. Thanks for listening to the Nature Breakthroughs Podcast with Dr. Wild Ben Goldman to discover what you need for personal, organizational, and societal change. Get your free download of three ancient rituals smart entrepreneurs use to bounce back from shifts in the market and inside themselves. Go to www.naturebreakthroughs.com.